Hey everyone, this is the Everyday Leader Podcast, where we hear from inspiring individuals building and leading teams across Africa. Today, I speak with Matthew Henshaw, the founder and CEO of Lesson Space and Code for Kids. Matthew is from Cape Town, South Africa. While he is an electromechanical engineer by training, he has flourished as a serial entrepreneur, having launched a series of education-focused tech startups. His first major startup success was founding Skillup Tutors in 2016 which was then acquired in 2021. He now oversees two global edtech companies, LessonSpace, a Zoom for Education solution, and Code for Kids, a way for teachers to teach coding, robotics, and IT in the classroom for ages 8 to 15. In this episode, Matthew and I spoke about his experience stepping into a leadership role by necessity, how managing multiple businesses or teams simultaneously can help provide perspective and parallel learning, and the risks of aiming for a perfect outcome. I hope you can enjoy our conversation. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to The Everyday Leader. Uh, Really excited to speak with you today about your leadership experience. Welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. And hello to all your listeners. So you currently serve as the founder and CEO of both Lesson Space and Code for Kids. Uh, But before we get there, I'd love to have you reflect and share on an early leadership experience that you had and how that shaped how you approach leadership. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Chris. And 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 I think it's a great topic to be talking about and something I think sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable talking about. So it's awesome to be surfacing these kind of discussions. Um, we started this seven, eight years ago, myself and three founders, high quality and engineers, these as my three co-founders. So I kind of had to take the, the stance of saying, okay, well, I'll figure out how we're gonna sell this uh, product and grow this business. And I kind of became, the the leader of the company almost um but i don't want to say by accident but kind of by necessity potentially and i think early on it was um i think the one of the very first experiences i i really had was of really realizing i was kind of the leader in this situation was and it was really a testament to the quality of the co-founders i had um, i remember very early days we were kind of going back and forth uh, we all four had equal voices and we had a decision that we needed to make and we had a very much polarizing opinions of what we were to do and i actually can't even remember what the decision was but i remember that i felt very strongly that we should do one thing and uh, another co-founder felt very strongly we should do something else and it got to the point where the co-founder looked at me and he said listen matt you're the leader here you make the decision what we're going to do and we'll back you either way even if we disagree and it was amazing. I think that's very rare and I was super grateful to have, you know, people like that on the team who seven years later are still working with me. Um, but what it did to me, it was like actually very humbling in the sense that it really made me take a step back and say, oh, shucks, I need to make this decision right. Because this guy's just basically said that whatever I decide we, we're going to do, we've now said we can keep talking around in circles, but... He, we now have to make a decision and what i say is kind of going to be the last thing that goes and for me that was like a really humbling experience um to say kind of if you're going to have this power in this company and it's good and he was right my co-founder said there's one person who is the who has to kind of make the final decision and when that person makes a decision you have to have a team who backs them and it forced it forced me to look at things very differently and saying from a far from a perspective really making sure that i'm thinking a huge amount about 
I'm not trying to make my decision to be right or be the, the last person to talk. I want to make my decision that it's the right one and that the team backs it. So I think for me, that was one of the very first times I felt that, that I had the kind of weight of leadership there. Wow. Um, that, that's definitely a humbling experience. And I want to st- maybe step even further, further back. What made you uh, explore working in, in such a setting, exploring kind of running a business with co-founders? What, what drew you to that initially? I think I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial um, in the sense like I remember, you know, <laughs> selling marigold seeds when I was 10 or dog food when I was 14. And I think that's what drew me to that kind of entrepreneurial spirit of saying, I want to go and do something or change the way something is done. Um, and I think I learned quite early. Well, actually, I wish I'd learned this earlier, but I really did eventually learn that the best way to, you know, that there's that great saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think I really realized that something that was going to be extremely important was getting the right people on board. People who are a lot smarter than I was, a lot more skilled than I was. And, you know, I was fortunate to have a couple of friends who were brilliant at what they did, who I liked a lot. And I maybe came, I, I maybe had the vision or, or I could paint the picture of what we could do um, and somehow convince them to to join me on this journey, um, full, full, full well knowing that they would have to do all the work to get it there. Um, maybe I was the architect more and they were the engineers kind of thing. And I suppose just the drawing, the drawing of an entrepreneurship is, is you see something and you know that it can be done better. And I, I re- I'm very much involved, as you mentioned, or alluded to that in education technology. And I did hear that, or I read an article once that was very interesting to say that a lot of first time entrepreneurs actually do start in ed tech, um, in education, because you know, it's all you know for 20 years, from the age of, of six to the age of, you know, 24, all you do, all you know is education. Um, that's the kind of only industry you really uh, have uh, familiarity with. And hence, it's often the first thing that entrepreneurs try and do. And I think that's probably true to myself. I kind of saw this education system and thought, oh, my word, there's so much stuff we can do better. And that's potentially the problem I kind of wanted to solve. And the need to do it was, yeah, well, I suppose that's entrepreneurship. It's so true. Entrepreneurs are often best uh, suited or best placed to solve problems that they have personally encountered. I never thought about it Mm -hmm. that way, that uh, young entrepreneurs, most of their life uh, and most recent interactions have been education related. So that makes so much sense Mm -hmm. now that you have uh, positioned it that way. So while we're on that, can you tell us a little bit more about your two different ventures that you're currently working on? So Lesson Space, uh, and Code for Kids. Yeah, so we, like I mentioned, we started seven, eight years ago. We actually started a company called Skill Up Tutors, which was like a tutor marketplace on Airbnb for tutors. We recently sold that business um, last year. And we, I mean, it was, a, it was a long time coming to sell it because as, as you said, we have two businesses now, which my, my kind of suggestion to any entrepreneur is, you know, if you want to scale a business, it's about what you remove, not what you add. It's always about taking away, simplifying, focusing. We we aren't doing that. Um, and it's been, you know, both a blessing and a curse. And we have Lesson Space, which is Zoom for Education, software as a service that companies use to conduct online tutoring. It was great because 
our previous business was the first customer to that to our own product so we've spent the first six months in 2018 2017 learning what our customers needed without really knowing that it was going to be something we sold and we sold that around the world 99 percent of our customers are outside of africa mostly north america europe um, and that's been a really really fun business and we've been really fortunate with with you know how the world has moved to online education in the last two years and or three years and then code for kids is a is a kind of content built on top of that platform but used in school classrooms code for kids is a way for teachers to teach coding robotics and it in the school classroom so we've got about 30 40 000 students now in south africa who use the product or at their schools and we've actually really started getting um schools all over the world new zealand uh the uk kuwait Botswana, Zimbabwe, India, America. So that's been a really fun journey as well. It took a bit of a beating during COVID, but it's really, it's really come, come flaring back up, which has been really nice. And of course, now we have these kind of two businesses that we, we have to run, which, which isn't necessarily ideal all the time, but has its advantages. And, and so tell us a bit more about how in your role as a leader, you can balance these multiple ventures at a time, because uh, having launched one startup myself, how do you create the mental space to one, maybe compartmentalize each of those different platforms? I know one was a, a customer to the other, so it sounds like there's some overlap, but uh, it requires a lot of attention um, to lead different types of businesses. So how did you go about making sure that you were showing up as a leader for each of those? Yeah, it's a really good question to think of, like, how do you show up as a leader? I think from, from a, from like a, from a building business engineering perspective it's had a, a real big advantage because what i i really have seen the value in having two businesses when it comes to you know you don't you no longer look at a business as a single entity you you look at always comparatively to something else so it's, you get like a far more high level kind of view of something when you when i can look at business a and think oh well why is that working in a and not working in b so you can look at things like far more systematically, which I think has been really, really valuable. And you can take far more of kind of a, you know, you you maybe, maybe, you know, an entrepreneur's second business is much more successful than their first business because they had all these learnings from their first business. And I feel like one of the advantages getting to do that parallel, you you learn kind of on the go, which, which has been really cool. One of the things that I think I've struggled with as a leader, like I realized I was never going to be the, the you know, the, the smartest guy in the in the team and that's you know it's good to have a lot of smart people around you and I always would kind of pride myself on being at least the hardest worker and I think one of the things I've started to realize now we 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 almost 20 people across the two businesses which is not massive in itself but it's it's big enough to mean that you know I can't do everything anymore and I think as a as a leader I've kind of struggled or in the process of coming to terms with if you like of realizing that the work I do needs to be a little bit different and you can still be the hardest worker, but it might not look like it as much and having to really be more comfortable kind of um, delegating things that maybe in the past I could just have added to my list. And, you know, maybe that was what I thought defined me as a leader was my hard work. Um, and in the last, I can say maybe the last six, 12 months, I've really had to, Kind of come to terms with that it might not look like a work is hard you know because you do less of the day-to-day -day and you kind of think a little bit i suppose you there's a lot of insecurities you have as a leader and you know some of the 
sometimes you the only people you can really talk to about it is 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 other leaders um of startups um but i think one of the insecurities for me was like well what makes me <laughs> what makes me adequate to do this job if i'm no longer working as hard as you know anyone else and it's true now there's people in code for kids and there's people in lesson space who are you know of course working much harder on those businesses than i am because i'm trying to split it over two and there's always one getting more attention than the other and of course you're also worrying about everything else but i think yeah it has its pros but it's also had a it's i've had to change i think what how i how i lead or how i work rather potentially and i've, I've had to kind of also come to terms with the fact that you know what defines like what what is it that i'm good at in the company and i think the thing i came to was and i say this often to my employees and um, on my team i say i'm here to make sure you know where you're going and make sure you have the resources you need to get there and i think previously there also used to be and i will help us get there from a to b but i think or i will get us from a to b but now i'm far more one of I, my role the company is to make sure you know where you're going and make sure you have what you need to get there um, and come to terms with the fact that I'm not necessarily the person pulling the cart as much, which I used to love. And it looks a little bit different as a leader, I suppose. That, that sounds like a, a very uh, mindful or thoughtful shift that you have made over time, realizing that you can't uh, always be there um, and that uh, you have kind of a more of a hands-off approach, but still very important in terms of setting the direction and making sure the resources uh, are available to to execute on. Um, mm. You mentioned earlier, which really struck struck me, that managing multiple teams almost accelerated your uh, speed of learning. That you were seeing and making mistakes and learning and and capturing strategies across several different settings, and that you were able to then uh, almost uh, cross pollinate those uh, learnings across your different uh, businesses. Is there an example of, say, a management practice that you realized was super important in one business uh, that you then were able to almost immediately trans translate or um, apply to another team? Yeah, there's actually there's t like it's I've been blown away at how many times it's it's been useful. You know, there, there's even I mean I just before this I got off a call with um, a salesperson from from Code for Kids who jumped on a call with a salesperson from Lesson Space, you know, and it, it's really cool because they, I, you know, and I, I went to join there because there was something that someone had said previously and I thought, oh, shucks, that's completely different business, but that's a problem we had. Um, why don't we go and, why don't we actually just jump on a call with the, the Lesson Space sales team and, and, and figure that out and see what they did in that situation. I think like one of the examples where it's been the most powerful has been potentially in, in the sales teams. Um, and the systems we build around like our CRMs and and how we operate that. I think we had a the Code for Kids sales team. It's a very well-oiled machine. It's um it's the team is strong. The team is not when I say strong, I mean the the we have very we have a huge amount of clarity on what it is, how to operate the machine, how to to acquire customers, how to create a predictable, repeatable kind of sales strategy. And for me as a leader, I think what happened there was it's, you know, when Code for Kids was doing really well before COVID, I was able to pull up people who were able to really, I could almost be hands off and they, they are driving this, the system forward. Um, and then when COVID happened, I found myself getting quite um, hands on in the lesson space team. And 
the lessons based sales strategy is quite a bit different in some way, but there's a lot of similarities. And I was kind of trying to apply what was working at Cove Kids into lessons based, it wasn't working as well. And I was potentially, well, it definitely was being a little bit more micromanagey there. And it only started to turn around when I started to see that what worked at Code for Kids was when I started to give the the sales team more rope, more um, more kind of freedom. And I just like removed myself from the system. I became the biggest blocker there. And I think the, what was really awesome to see, well, what has been awesome to see in the last couple of months is how becoming more hands off there and more trust in the, in the team there, it, it's, the positive results are unbelievable. Um, and that's exactly, you know, I almost wish I'd listened to that advice earlier when I, you know, I, you kind of miss it, you know, but I wish I'd seen, oh, well, that's what worked to code for kids. Why did, I should have done that at lesson space instead of gone and try and do it all myself. Um, so that's been an example um, where it's worked very practically. It's really interesting. You kind of alluded to the fact that as much as there's uh, common strategies that you can apply from one team or business to the other that uh, at the end of the day, they are different teams. They are different uh, business models to some extent. Um, has there been something that you have tried to transfer to another team and uh, it just didn't work uh, as expected? I think the, that's what I kind of meant when I, I mean, the, when I say that the, you look at it far more systematically. And, and what I mean by that is like, you know, the code for kids, it's a machine. The business is a machine. Like the machine has parts, it has people that operate the machine, it has touch points where certain you know, gears are in, interacting with one another. And I think the machines are slightly different, but the process of building the machine is the same. So the process of saying, okay, well, why is this working here and not there is important. And I think one of the things that we've realized is that, and, and I don't know how much of this is, is a, um, I don't know how much of this is like, for example, lesson space, the, the product is far more imp important part of the whole system. If the product goes down, we have a disaster. So there's a huge amount of focus and emphasis on building a really good product and making sure the product is really good means that you get quite a bit of inbound, uh, quite a bit of kind of retention of customers. And that becomes very high. So you have to focus on that where the sales team is, is doing a lot more kind of dealing with a lot of inbound, you know, working with a lot of channel partners, speaking with a lot of maybe uh, big organizations or, or government departments, where the Code for Kids system, the product is far more stable in some way. And the kind of getting your foot in the door is far more important. So you've got to be a lot more strategic in, in, in how do you get into the school? How do you get into the school district? How do you get into the school group? So I would say that it's not to say that the one system doesn't work and the other system does. But, you know, the one company's unique selling points or focuses are very different to the others. So you really got to, I think the difference has been like where to focus the attention is not necessarily the same at least. The kind of, the kind of critical points or the block points, the points that where I can maybe do the, have the highest leverage are different in, in each company. And that means that the points that I think are the most important will get a little bit more refined in the one than the other. You mentioned how your your leadership style has kind of shifted to be a bit um, more adjusting to how much support each team needs. To what extent um, has that applied in some way as your business scope has gone global? Because initially, Skill Up Tutors was focused, if I understand right, the South African market. Mm. And then when you 
built out less than space and the technology infrastructure behind that business, it was global um, from the start and your, your mm. clientele is also global. How has that shifted your uh, focus and your leadership style more broadly? You know, we, we were always in an office and then we became kind of remote in 2018. So we were lucky in some way to be remote, but we still only really had South African, or we did, we only had South African employees. You know, now we have, you know, people in like Europe and America and Thailand and Mauritius and uh, South Africa, of course. And, you know, no one is necessarily even in the same city anymore. So I think the business is, you know, the, it seems like it's far more, you know, there's not like a start of the day and the end of the day anymore. There's not kind of, there's not like, okay, this is today's goals or these are like what we're trying to do today. It, it seems to be the business is far more kind of continuous. There's always something going on. There's always um, someone taking over from someone. And I think it's been, I, I, I don't know maybe if this is the right way, but I, like, I think I'm finding that like the, the more, the less I try to, define the culture and the more I just try and kind of control the edge cases or the scope of where it's drifting and kicking it back into place when when issues arise has been better so I think I'm letting it I, I've been far more hands-off in the sense in the last you know year in in letting it kind of define itself and trusting you know if there's 20 people in the culture in the team every one of those people is 120th of the culture I'm not a half and everyone else is, uh, you know, less than that. I I think it's just reminding myself that every single person in this team is equal in how they define the team, how they define the company, who the company is. And so just like relearning to trust people more, relearning to to try and control things less. But then, then you know, that comes hand in hand with just making sure that when, when things do get a little bit out of hand, we have like, you know, various company values that have been with us for seven years and have uh, held the test of time. You know, we, we have one of our values is stab in the front or pat in the back. Instead of stabbing in the back, like make sure you always talk to someone to their face. You know, don't ever talk nonsense behind someone's back. And, you know, so my kind of role has become far more of just make sure that when that does happen, then we deal with it as opposed to trying to find, you know, where we're going, what we're doing all the time. And I'm not necessarily the one to talk as much in meetings anymore. I always try and talk last. And there's always somebody else who's got a better story from an exciting thing that happened with a client than, than me now. So, you know, let that kind of foster, let, let that happen. It's not me driving that as much anymore. So yeah, more hands-off, I suppose, if I have to define it. So with this more hands-off, uh, approach and kind of trusting and um, kind of letting your teams who are closer to the operations and the machine that they're operating and, and the customers, how do you still stay kind of attuned to their needs and also your customers' needs? Because I imagine you're still the uh, final decision maker, especially when it comes to maybe big decisions, big like a bold bets that you might want to make as a company. So how do you balance being hands-off and uh, letting your team kind of uh, run the show. And then also at the same time, uh, being in a position to make the final call and, and make big bets. Definitely not something I'm doing perfectly, but I think I'm spending far more time making fewer decisions now. So I think maybe 
maybe the a lot more of my time is spent making decisions as opposed to executing as it as it used to be and i mean like relatively i still try to spend as much time as i can you know executing and i think there's something that we do follow is the one page strategic plan the opsp from from scaling up uh, rockefeller habits it's been something that's guided as well as part of the purpose and the values that i mentioned and i think one of the things that we i can say that i think we do quite well is we're very good every year at setting our goals and our and every quarter at setting our priorities and something i find myself saying quite a bit in meetings is that's a great idea and we should do that but let's put it on the next priority list to assess and if it's still something we're going to care about in 90 days then we'll do it so i think i spend a lot of time trying to you know that like i said my goal is to make sure everyone knows where they're going and has the support they need to get there so you know i have my finger on the pulse but only on the kind of things that i think we decided are really important six months a year ago and we're making sure that those are still the things we we're focusing on today so i think i can keep in tune with how things are going by really just you know making sure the machine dials are doing the right things and I'm listening to people speaking when there's maybe red flags um, or things aren't going so well. Yeah, I think keeping focused is, is a key point. It's very easy to like have something that comes up to the surface and we decide to jump into it and you do it and it actually is something that wasn't actually very well thought out or wasn't or was a bit of a waste of time. And we spend a lot of time deciding where we want to go. To, and then once we decided where we want to go, I think it's my job has become far more making sure we're just going there. And making sure that we're not getting too distracted from from other goals so that's potentially you know how, how i think about that a little differently you mentioned that you made the decision to sell one of your businesses and it was almost a long time coming how did you know it was the right time and how did you create the alignment amongst uh your co-founders and other uh, kind of owners uh to move ahead with that yeah, so yeah, that's a that's a whole podcast in itself. But I think the kind of high level comment there is that we had this business. It was a B two C business in South Africa in in education, you know. And you know, we were first time green entrepreneurs. We came out and we thought, ah, well, we just need on our Excel spreadsheet. We just scroll sixteen months to the right. Oh well, we'll eventually be having this number, and then ah, we're making you know just enough to pay ourselves, and that whole business was driven by cost per acquisition and lifetime value. And I think the whole thing we learned there was you have to think very carefully about like budget flow and your kind of key, key metrics, like cost per acquisition and lifetime value was something that was just kind of like haphazardly written or thought about somewhere or measured a little bit, but it actually was the single most important part of that entire business. And when we very quickly realized this you know by making mistakes I, when i say very quickly you know three years we realized that this business for it to be successful we needed a huge amount of funding or we needed a way to decrease the cost per acquisition or increase the lifetime value that was kind of going to change it by 10x um we came to terms with the fact and, and a big learning there was also like when you think of you think of flow of budget um in a household and you know like code for kids we sell it to a school so we used to go to the school and say hey school would you buy our coding software and they said oh well, we don't buy software we said oh well would you buy our coding textbook it's the same price as a textbook and you know a school's like oh that's perfect we have a textbook line budget item you know it 
the budget flows towards textbooks. When you think of like online tutoring or tutoring, it's not, it's like a grudge spend that a parent has. It's not like you, you start your month, you say, cool, well, 2000 Rand is going to go to tutoring. It's not something you kind of assign a lot of budget to. And we, and we struggle with that. So when we were thinking about, well, we turned down the business and the fact that we started focusing on, on lesson space and code for kids and, and kind of kept it going. It was a good way to test our software. Still, it still is, but we realized that it actually, the business is very valuable to somebody who can either dramatically decrease the cost of acquisition or dramatically increase the lifetime value by selling on things. So the acquirer was somebody who was, is able to, you know, increase, decrease the cost of acquisition by a hundred X because they have a massive customer base that they don't have to pay Google ads for. And they can dramatically increase the lifetime value because they sell other things to these customers. So, you know, it, it, our business was not useful, was not as valuable to us anymore, but to someone else that we realized it could be very, very valuable. And that's when we started thinking and putting a few feelers out and seeing if someone would want to, to purchase it. And looking back at that decision, particularly around the, the team, were, were you proud of how you handled that transition? Was there any key learnings when it comes to um, guiding the company through that stage? Yo, again, that's like definitely a short question, long answer. There were so many learnings, and I think I, I, I am proud of how it turned out, but I'm also very humbled in a sense because I think what I realized, and a, a friend told me this analogy, which is just stuck in my head. Um, you kind of, you're trying to make the best decision you can. And what, he used this analogy of tennis. Like you're trying to go, you're trying to like get an ace, right? So you're trying to serve the ball and you're trying to ace it. Um, you know, and, and if you serve it straight into the center of the court, the person your opponent's just going to send it straight back to you and it's not going to be a very good serve. But to get an ace, you've got to get it as close to the line as possible. And what happens is like, as you try and get it closer and closer to the line, the ultimate outcome of whether it's in or out is binary. It's either successful or not successful. But that could be the difference of one or two millimeters, whether it's successful or not. Like, I think that the gap between failure and success is so much closer than I thought it was. Um, this deal could have fallen through completely terribly. It really, it really could have not worked. I, there was a point that where I made a decision that was a very difficult decision. Um, that was a risk and it really could have gone badly. And I could be sitting here now and saying we made the worst decision of our lives, but I'm fortunate to be able to say we made the best decision, but the difference between that really good decision and that really bad decision even though the outcome was binary, the, the gap between those decisions was millimeters. And I think that was like quite humbling uh, to realize that there's actually, there's only so much in your control and the, the outcome was good and it, it went well. And I'm certain, you know, if that bad outcome happened, we would have found a way, you know, to make the best out of it. But just kind of to, <laughs> just, I, I suppose just humbling, like, from a leadership perspective, like things sometimes go to plan and sometimes they don't. Um, and you've got to make, make sure that whether it's going to plan or not going to plan, you're still working as hard as you can and and keeping set on your kind of goals and targets. I don't know if that really <laughs> makes sense. Or yeah, 100%. And I suppose that 
the the leadership element is that uh, you you have the full information or a lot more information than others uh, to know how close it was from not going as smooth as possible, uh, and that you're really only able to share that uh, much later on. So I'm glad that it it worked out uh, well for you. And just as we start to wrap up, uh, you have been kind of in the tech space for a while, and you like you mentioned have been primarily focused on uh, education technology, and as you also noted that has really been um, ramping up in the past couple of years because of the shift to, to remote uh, education in a lot of um, places and a lot of context. What, what types of trends do you see in kind of the, the post-lockdown era uh, or other types of trends you're noticing in, in the ed tech space as you uh, grow lesson space and code for kids and, and see the types of use cases uh, being um, uh, used for for the lessons based product. Um, sure, trades in education. I think I think there's I think we kind of realizing which I think we've known this for a long while, but I think we struggle to um, act on it or execute it. And I say we, I mean like education. I think there's the value of education comes when you combine content and people. It's like a one plus one equals three or content and teachers. So like, you know, Khan Academy, Coursera, these are these are massive businesses with, you know, big valuations, but very, very low valuation per student, if you had to put it at that ratio. Um, and, you know, tutoring companies where they're just offering people and it's also they, the valuation per student is much higher and there's some really successful businesses, but it's still like a kind of a ceiling where you kind of you you're in your mind you're putting you're putting a human's hourly rate as your kind of how much you're willing to pay and i think if you look at a company like a get smarter you know who are innovating in this years ago in south africa um but you put any kind of online courses any kind of online content plus these virtual schools that are um coming alive the the UST online school when you combine content with trained teachers I think that's really when we start to get value in, in education. There's no lack of content in the world. Um, and I think we have to, like, we're starting to be more and more honest with ourselves. Like, it's getting people to complete content. That's really, really difficult. So completion rates are, solving completion rates, I think, is is people. People solve completion rates, especially in K-12. One of the things that I think we're seeing, especially when you look at, like, where governments are putting funding, it's really trying to focus on the human element of things of saying, well, can we give this person a person to help them? Can we give this person a tutor? Can we give this course a, a teacher support to go through the system? And I think I'd like to believe that's where the trend is going, because that's really where we think it's going and where we've built our systems to go. We, you know, we've doubled down on our focus on teachers. We don't like our code for kids is all about focusing on training the teacher. It's not about replacing a teacher. Lesson space is all about increasing the engagement of a of a student with a teacher. Our purpose at our company is make teaching easier. You know, I don't think I think these kind of ideas where teachers are going to get replaced. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think teachers. I think if there's a trend, it's back towards teachers. If <laughs> if it went away for a little while, I think it's back towards teachers. Yeah, that's a great observation. This this balance that needs to be met between the low touch, highly scalable content versus the high touch, but uh, inherently uh, limited uh, model of, of kind of one-on-one -on -one engagement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's definitely uh, something to be mindful of and trying to get closer to that balance where the end result is a higher success rate, higher completion rate uh, for, for the participant. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your knowledge about the sector, but also some of these great reflections about your leadership journey as a CEO and founder, having uh, brought a number of different uh, products and companies to to market and to scale and uh, bringing your team along with you and uh, really it sounds like uh, transforming your leadership style to adjust for the changes in your business. So this was fascinating to hear directly from you. So really appreciate your time and looking forward to continuing to follow you on your journey. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate your time too. And it's been a pleasure speaking.